listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you please now stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage today will be from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. How many people here grew up with brothers and sisters at home, or have brothers and sisters at home now? Uh, Okay, so um, any oldest siblings here? All right, youngest siblings. All right, that's my crew, right. Uh, did you guys also argue and compete over who mom and dad loved the most? Or was it just my family? I mean, the oldest ones knew that they were the best because they followed the rules generally. And the middle ones knew that they were the best because they were generally kind of the peacemakers and tried to bring everyone together. And the youngest ones, I think we're just like cats. Like, we just assume everyone automatically acknowledges how awesome we are and should love us anyway. You know, uh, like most families, we had house rules. Uh, Get up at seven, uh, make your bed, eat breakfast, brush your teeth, get your book bag, bike to school this way, make sure you get there on time, stay off this busy road, here's how much you can spend on lunch, come straight home from school, put your book bag away, you can play for 30 minutes before you do your chores, make sure you vacuum the house and put the dishes away. Be sure you're here at home for dinner at six. Uh, Do your homework, brush your teeth, wash your face, go to bed. And uh, we knew the rules didn't make us part of the family, but somehow the rules ended up becoming often the thing that my brothers and I used to determine who was in better standing and who was the better sibling, right? Who mom and dad were more in favor of. Uh, Brad didn't take the trash out like he was supposed to, Jeff threw his peas down the garbage and didn't eat them. True story. Steve stayed out past curfew, right? Like, it sounds silly, but that's a little bit like what was going on in the Church of Galatia. And, and yet, to extend the analogy even more, it would almost be like, you know, it, what if I, like, as a 30 or a 40 or a 50-year-old, I'd still been calling my mom up and saying, hey, mom, just wanted to call and let you know I ate all my vegetables tonight. And I had a small bowl of ice cream dessert, and I went to bed at a good time. But, you know, Brad stayed up late, and he had cold pizza for breakfast. So I, you know, I don't know what's up with that. That sounds silly, right? And and yet, that's a little what was going on in this church in Galatia. God's rules that were, you know, kind of good guidelines had somehow started becoming the measuring stick for who's in and who's out and how close we are to God and and who's really spiritually mature. You know, God designed those rules, his commandment, the Torah, to be a little like the the steering wheel on the car. I mean, it's important, it's helpful, it keeps you going in the right direction, but 
It's not the engine. It, it can't actually move you anywhere. It can't get you where you need to go. It can just keep you from getting where you shouldn't be going. And maybe if you know your own heart, like I know mine, you can see how sometimes we're tempted to take even the good things that God has said to us in his word and make those become the measuring stick for how I think I'm performing or especially to measure other people and how I'm performing in comparison to them. I'm doing the things, I support the things, I believe the things that everyone who loves Jesus is doing and believes in. I don't know about you guys over here. Everyone over on this side is doing great. I don't know why you guys can't get with the program or vice versa. I mean, it seems so simple. Why aren't you just doing the things that you ought to be doing that I'm doing? Are you even trying? Are you even Christians if you're not doing the stuff that I think you ought to be doing? There's something attractive about rules, though, because it, it makes life easier in a way. Just tell me what to do, and then I'll know whether or not I'm measuring up and whether or not I'm better than that other person. But that is not what God made us for. And that's not the life that he has called us to. What God wants is for us to know that knowing God is enough. I think that's really the big idea in the passage that we're looking at today, that knowing God is enough. What does that mean? Well, to know God, if I asked you, do you know God? How would you respond to that? What, what would you say? It, it, I've had some experience, or I, I felt something, or I just kind of, you know, sense his presence around, or I'm involved in church and activities, I do Bible study, I, I have uh, the right doctrine. I mean, those things are not bad, but none of them are ultimately really about knowing God. More than knowing things about God, biblically, knowing God is holistic. It's about our whole life. It's relational. The, the very language that Paul uses here is, uh, in verse 8, a, a term that implies kind of an, an intimate awareness of another person, a deep personal knowledge of someone else. And we see that here. If, if you haven't opened your Bibles, go ahead and Open them to Galatians chapter 4. Now that's on page 18 in your Galatians journals if you have them, or you can uh, use the black Bible in the seat underneath you or whatever you use to access God's Word. See, Paul says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved. He doesn't say when you did not know God, you were ignorant. You're not knowing God was simply not having enough information. Because knowing God isn't like we know a subject, like a multiplication tables, or a recipe, or a math equation. Knowing God is about a personal living relationship with the God who made us and made us to know him. And not knowing him is about being alienated and distanced, not about just having a lack of information. That's what God created us for, to know him and trust him in a loving, and a life-transforming way. Well, so far, so good. Hopefully, we would all agree with that. But what does that have to do with what's going on in this church in Galatia and the issue over the, you know, God's rules as a way of 
measuring ourselves or measuring others. Paul wants us to see that God is knowing God is enough in three key ways. And, and the first one is this. He, he starts off telling us that knowing God is true freedom. Knowing God is true freedom. Again, what we just read in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things, those powers that by nature are not God's. In our natural state, outside of knowing God in Jesus, we are trapped, we are enslaved, we are under the bondage of principles, powers, a, a kind of life that, that shapes us and is just kind of our natural way of going through the world. And, and Paul is reminding us we needed rescue. We, we were not able to do that for ourselves. We were enslaved to things that are not God's. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's taking a thing that God has created and, and making it ultimate, making it the source of life instead of a channel of God's blessing. It's trying to take something that God has made and look at it as the thing that will give us satisfaction and freedom and life and identity. It's, it's asking a gift, expecting a gift to satisfy your soul, and you end up enslaved to it. And the irony here is that the, the Jewish believers in Galatia apparently were telling the Gentiles that to be really free, to know that they were God's people, they needed to take on Torah observance. They, they needed to follow the rituals and, and the rites of being Jewish people. And Paul is saying that actually does the exact opposite. It's actually enslaving them. Instead of helping them to grow up and be free, it puts them back in a position of spiritual infancy, of looking to symbols and rituals instead of to Christ. But because the Gentiles, he's saying, had formerly, all of us had been enslaved to these elementary principles that Paul talked about in verse 3, and he brings up again here in verse 9. But now, ironically, they're in danger of enslaving themselves all over again, this time in the form of obeying God's law. Now, for some of us, maybe that's not what slavery looks like. For some, most of us, maybe we even have a hard time believing that we could be enslaved to anything. But the reality is, we're all enslaved to something, even if we don't use that word. Because what, what else would we call it when... We can't stop looking to other people for approval. We can't stop having to get the last word in or prove how smart we are or boast about how successful we are or look for the next thing to have more, more money, more influence, more relationship, a bigger house, a more exciting life. That's slavery, isn't it? But it sounds a lot like the prodigal, the the parable of the prodigal son, if you think about it, uh, that's one kind of slavery, but there's also the slavery of the older brother who's enslaved by believing that keeping the law, obeying his father, doing everything the dad asked, put him in a better position. It made him on the inside. It made him more loved. It made him more close. It made him more a child. And both of them were lost. Both of them were enslaved. And that's what Paul is warning these believers in Galatia about. That if you go back to using God's law as a measuring stick, 
for how close you are to him, how much he loves you, whether you're doing a better job than someone else. You're enslaving yourself and them all over again. Slavery does not always come from the outside. In fact, it may even be worse when it's on the inside, when we are enslaved to ourselves, our desires. When that's our reality, how do we get free? It's not going to be through what we do. It doesn't mean we can't improve ourselves. It doesn't mean we can't make positive changes in our life. I mean, you don't have to know Jesus to get sober or do a better job at work or be a better husband or spouse or kid or get healthy or take control of our lives. But Paul is saying true freedom really only ever comes from knowing Jesus. Because real freedom means not just changing things on the outside to make life better, but actually being changed from the inside so that our hearts are renewed and set free. That's what God wants for you, that, that rules and rituals and obedience can never produce. Only knowing God can do that. Knowing Jesus is enough because Jesus comes to set us free from running after our desires or thinking that we're better because we're not running after them and we're obeying like other people aren't. Knowing Jesus is true freedom. And knowing Jesus also is what produces spiritual maturity. That's what Paul goes on to point out in verse 9, if we really dig into it and think about it. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, if you like to mark in your Bibles, you can underline that weak and worthless principles. Far from being a sign of maturity, putting themselves back under Torah is a sign of immaturity. The, the Jewish believers thought that they were superior because they were keeping God's regulations that marked them out as God's people. And, and Paul destroys that by making this connection to childhood and immaturity. Those of you who are uh, kids who are here today in worship, glad you're here with us. Uh, how many of you are under 10? under 10. Some. How many of you have parents who let you drive the car or the truck or the tractor? Maybe if you sit on mom or dad's lap. On your own? Oh, wow. I want to go to your... Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting head shakes from dad. No, that does not happen. It makes a good story. That would be fun, but there's a reason we don't do that. Not just because the, our legs can't reach the pedal at that age. We don't have the wisdom and the maturity to be able to handle that thing at 10 or 12, just like we don't let 12-year-olds vote. There are reasons for that. We don't let children make important life decisions like that because we're not at the place yet where we can handle those things appropriately. The need for those kinds of rules and regulations is, in fact, a sign of immaturity, Paul says. Because those rules and regulations, those principles are weak. They, they can't help us. They can't change us. They have no power to actually change our hearts. And they're worthless. Uh, in some translations, maybe yours says beggarly. Like, I think that's the old King James. It, it, it has this sense in the Greek of uh, being destitute. 
uh, of having no resources. In fact, instead of giving us anything, the rules and regulations take life from us. They, they suck life and joy out of us. They, they can never make us into the people that we want to be and that God made us to be. You know, uh, this is the time of year uh, when if you go to the gym, you know that there's going to be a big crowd of people next week, right? Why? Because we all enjoyed the last week or month or so, and then suddenly a bunch of people decided, oh man, I really ate too much. I've got to get in shape. I'm going to hit the gym. And then the gyms are empty in February. Why? Because the ship of our expectations crashes on the rocks of reality. Exercise is hard, and, it, and it's painful. I mean, it, it has some benefit-ish, Good, good idea. You guys go do that. No, seriously, it has some benefit. But, but that idea of like making the resolution and telling myself I'm going to be a better person by doing this and just gritting my teeth doesn't have the power to actually change us. It can't produce the maturity and the life that God intends for us. In a parallel passage in Colossians 2, Paul says, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, that, that same phrase again, why do you submit to their regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value to stop the indulgence of the flesh. All those self-imposed regulations cannot change our hearts. I can put all the tracking software on my phone to, to you know, alert someone or keep me from going to the websites that wouldn't be good for me, but if I want to go there, I'll find a way to get there. That's what Paul is getting at. The law, the rule, the system cannot change our hearts. And the evidence that these people are turning back in an unhelpful way to that is, is here in verse 10. You're observing days and months and seasons and years. Now, again, in the context of what's going on in Galatians, it seems pretty clear Paul's saying these Jewish believers in the church are really pressuring, encouraging the Gentile Christians, if you really want to know that you're in, if you really want to know that you're among God's people, you need to keep Sabbaths and new moons and Jubilee years and all the festivals and the food ordinances and, and all the rest of it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that in itself. As Paul writes in Romans, again, in a kind of a parallel passage, one considers one day more holy, another considers all days alike. Let each one be convinced in his mind without passing judgment on one another. So the point is not that they're observing seasons and they're inherently bad. The problem is making it a matter of obligation, making it a measuring stick for your walk with Christ, for how mature you are. You know, recently, in the last few years, we picked up more structured observance around seasons of the church year, like Lent and Advent and, and days like Ash Wednesday. And as Paul saying, that's, that's wrong, that's bad. Well, it depends. It makes all the difference in the world whether you're saying, I think this is helpful, and it's useful for helping me focus on what Christ has done and remember him, or whether you're saying, 
This is what you need to do to really be a faithful follower of Jesus. And if you don't show up and, and participate in those things, well, you're, you know, you're not really taking Jesus seriously. I hope you understand it. You never hear that coming from anyone here at Faith Church. We don't ever want to communicate that, you know, you need to observe Advent or you're less than if you're not in an Ash Wednesday service or, you know, or you don't do this thing or that thing. Those are what is not ultimately important. What matters is knowing Christ. If they're helpful for you, that's great. If they're not helpful, then that's great too. And it doesn't matter because what matters is knowing Christ. Because knowing Christ is what produces maturity. And if those things help you with that, wonderful. Don't make any day or season or observance or rule or regulation or standard of Christian behavior or activity a replacement for knowing Jesus or a measurement of knowing Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Because, see, that observing the, the Torah regulations did not make the Jews God's people. They were already God's people. It was an outward symbol of belonging to Yahweh. So Paul's saying, why would you want to go back and focus on the outward symbol instead of the reality which you have in Christ? Because all those things were pointing to Jesus. The important thing is knowing God. If I know that God loves and saves and adopts and is delighted in me through Jesus, and that only happens by his grace, then don't worry about symbols or observances or group identifiers. If they help you in growing to know Jesus, that's fine, but they won't make you known by Jesus. Does that make sense? That's not what makes Jesus see you. That's not what makes Jesus love you. That's not what identifies you as belonging to Jesus. You are known and loved and accepted and identified because of what Jesus has done, and he wants you to rest in that and rest in that for other people too who are walking differently. You know, if some people celebrate Christmas, that's fine. If they don't, it's not fine. We had a family at our previous church who left over frustration that the church was encouraging celebrating Christmas. I mean, we were demanding people celebrate Christmas. We just had Christmas trees up. But, you know, you can't love Jesus and have Christmas trees in, in that guy's mind, and that's unfortunate. Because I don't care. The Christmas tree doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is knowing Jesus. But don't let the Christmas tree or the whatever it is become the measure of whether or not you know and love Jesus. It's knowing Jesus that grows us in spiritual maturity. And then finally, knowing God gives us an unshakable confidence. Knowing God is what gives us confidence. I think that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 11. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Not just that they would surrender their freedom in Christ because of these other people's expectations, but they may actually be heading down a path that will lead them away from the gospel and away from Christ ultimately. If these Gentile believers think that Torah observance is what guarantees they're in, if keeping the rules is what makes them be able to measure how close they are to God, then Paul is saying, I'm, I'm afraid that all the work, all the gospel preaching that I've done for you will have been wasted because you're heading down a totally different road. 
from, from the freedom and the life and the confidence that God wants you to have in Christ. You will be putting yourself back under the authority of those elementary principles, the rules and regulations. It can't save you, can't grow you, and can't guarantee that you will make it all the way home. Rules and regulations can never give us confidence. It only gives us confidence in our flesh, right? Like, I'm doing a pretty good job measuring up to the standard. I don't know about you guys. See, that's what Paul wants to kill. As soon as I start making my confidence for the future about how I'm doing, especially in relation to someone else, then, then I can have no confidence. It's only in what Jesus has done that I can have confidence and hope for the future. To be in Christ is to have all the confidence in the world of God's work and God's promise and God's purposes. Rules and regulations can never give us confidence and turning back to them as markers of progress means we're heading in the wrong direction. Look at what Paul writes down in verse 19 that we'll get into in detail next week. My little children, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's a little bit what he's echoing here in verse 11. Those He's saying, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Oh, I so want you to know Jesus and be grounded in him. I want that more than anything. And I work and I pray and I struggle for that. That's what Paul says is worth fighting for. That's what Paul says is worth investing ourselves for. In contrast, you know, as Paul's telling his own story in Philippians 3, all those accomplishments, all the things that were to my credit, all the religious rewards that I had piled up, they were garbage. They were dung to me, worthless compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. If you are poor, if you're in bad health, if you're in financial trouble, but you have Jesus... You have everything. And and if you are rich and healthy and successful and life is going well and you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. You have nothing that matters. Are you going to turn around back to those things, to to, to some outward symbol or status of, of measuring how you're doing with God and what God thinks about you? Don't go back, Paul says. Because Jesus is offering you life and security and joy. Do you know him? Paul asks. Do you know him? Or better, as he says in verse 9, are you known by him? Now that you know God, or rather are known by God. This is a language of of covenant and relationship and connection and costly investment in one another. Because Paul is saying God is aware of everything that you are, every sin, every failure, every flaw, and all that it will cost to make him, make you his child. And he's willing to do it and has done it for you in Jesus Christ. He pays that price. He absorbs all the pains himself to be your God and to make you his child. That is amazing, isn't it? 
to know you in that way, to be known in that way. Because if you've come to know God, Paul's saying something bigger has already preceded that. God was already reaching out to know you, choosing you. We love because he first loved us. God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your personality, your temperament, your strengths and weaknesses, your hopes and dreams and fears. He knows what you need even before, he, even before you ask. He knows you and he loves you and he even likes you. That's the part that really blows my mind. To be known by God makes all the difference. Jesus' prayer to his Father in John 17. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In response to a God like that, how, why would we ever turn back to anything less, anything that cannot give life, freedom, confidence, security, that cannot help us grow? God knows you. And knowing God is enough. But we can't ever know him enough. It's the project of a lifetime plus eternity. And and that's actually encouraging because it means we will never, never run to an end of this project of knowing God and being known more and more by him and knowing him more and more. It's the only thing that gives us freedom. The only thing that helps us grow into the people God intends us to be. The only thing that gives us confidence is knowing that God. So can I suggest that one of the things we could do is commit ourselves, make it our goal this year to know Jesus more, to know more about him, to walk with him more closely, to invest the time to know him. And that faith would become a community where people could come in and say, not just, you obviously know things about God. Yes, you have good theology and solid doctrine and and meaningful worship. But to be able to look at us and say, those people know God. They know Jesus. They have the markers of knowing him in their lives. That is your confidence. That is enough. Oh, know that God and pursue him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your seeking us, reaching out for us, knowing us, calling out to us even when we did not know you so that in love we could become your children by faith. Father, we know that that's true, and yet it's so easy for us to slip back into starting to think that what we're doing, how we're performing, becomes the measure of what you think of us and how close we are to you and how close other people are to you. Oh, God, help us. Help us to take this message that knowing you is enough, not just for us, but for others too. And that would make a difference in how we live and how we love one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.